So it's an amazing thing, brothers and sisters, that there are people um, in whose wake that uh, we are behind who could literally, physically say yes in the an- to answer all of those questions. Part of what strengthens my own faith is that I believe them. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, a young upstart rabbi, began calling his first disciples. This was a little bit unorthodox. Typically, followers chose their teacher or their rabbi or with the help of their parents or their grandparents located a good person to follow. Thaddeus, you should follow Rabbi Nicodemus. He's so wise. I don't know where that voice came from. <laughs> Sorry to grandmothers everywhere. Uh, but that's the way it usually works, not vice versa. When John, the person whose eyewitness testimony we're going to hear about this morning, when John met Jesus, he was likely a young adult, 17, 18, 19 years old, working as a fisherman with his father Zebedee and his brother James, fishing on the Sea of Galilee, sailing out of the port of Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee being this beautiful freshwater jewel in an otherwise pretty dry Uh, part of the world. We don't know the circumstances exactly, but this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, comes on the scene, probably spends some time with these fishermen, and at one point looks them in the eye and says to John in particular, follow me. And John did. That was the end of making a living as a fisherman, left his nets, left the family business, hopefully with his father's blessing, and for three plus years, John walked with Jesus from the beginning of his adult ministry to the conclusion. Think of all the things that John would have seen. I mean, there's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is the John we're talking about. He ended up writing down some of the many things that he saw, and he gave a disclaimer at the end of his book saying, like, if I wrote down all the things that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the entire library to catalog all the amazing things that Jesus did. But here are just a few. Wonderfully, somewhere early in their relationship, Jesus gave John a nickname. He did this for several of his disciples. I love that the Bible tells us this. Uh, John's nickname was Boanerges. Anybody, your friends call you that? Boanerges? (laughs) Maybe after this? No. Uh, I'll explain what this means in just a minute, but here are a few highlights from John's early time with Jesus. These may sound like lowlights to you. One time, John and his brother James came to Jesus and said, Lord, we have a great idea. What if you make one of us your right-hand man, and then you make the other one of us like your first lieutenant? Because have you seen these other guys who are following you? These yahoos, they totally do not know what's going on. So just elevate us a little bit, and you will be on the fast track to Messiahhood. Sound like great guys, right? Now, shockingly, this caused a little bit of bad blood between James and John, these brothers, and the rest of the disciples. Now, how do we feel about ambition? That kind of blind ambition... Jesus took this moment to tell his followers this. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first 
must actually be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That would be kind of a humbling course correction (laughs) to endure in front of your teammates, right? So one thing we know about John, early in his life, ambitious, thinking he's competent, thinking he could be Jesus' right-hand man. Another time, Jesus and his disciples were on their way from the north in Galilee down south to the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus decided to take a shortcut through Samaria. Um, Always bad blood between Jews and Samaritans. I mean, a little bit like if one of us, uh, you know, kind of spoiled Chicago suburbanites drives all the way to southern Illinois, and kind of in the back of our head, we might be thinking, like, wow, people don't talk quite the same down here. And... Like, it takes quite a while even to get fast food at the restaurants down here. Like, we live in the suburbs and we're a little bit snobby. True? Is it just me? (laughs) So Jesus' Jesus' disciples totally had this this attitude, but probably double or triple what we have when they went through Samaria. One particular time, they are going through a village... There's no hospitality, there's no welcome, the Samaritans kind of are turning their back on these Jewish men, and John's response is to say this, hey Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven down to destroy them? John had already been walking with Jesus for a couple of years at this point, but his anger his sensitivity to being offended, still his sense of superiority and his judgmentalness was still so strong that his solution to these backwater Samaritans was like, hey, Jesus, how about we just wipe out this whole place? Perhaps it was for this reason that Jesus called John Boanerges, which means the son of thunder. What a great name. The son of thunder is how this guy started following Jesus. Full of ambition, full of judgment, full of superiority, full of possibly a little anger. I love that Jesus gave him this nickname. I mean, it is both true and spot on. And quite frankly, it's funny. Like Jesus is, I think, probably funnier uh, than any of us can possibly imagine. I am encouraged that people like John are exactly the kind of people that Jesus loves to choose. People who are imperfect, prone to anger, prone to ambition, prone to poor judgment, prone to superiority. Whatever um, lack of virtue might have, you might have, Jesus has no qualms with that and is very eager to point and say, you follow me. Jesus chooses all kinds of people. Introverts, extroverts, creative people, rule followers, pushy people, placating people. Whatever we are, Jesus looks at us and beautifully would whisper to each of us, come and follow me. Here's the thing we need to know, though. Just like John, Jesus will not allow us to stay as he found us. He loves us too much for that. Jesus, through humor, through experience, maybe through giving us a nickname, 
through some way, he will begin over time working on us, working with us, working through us, and changing and transforming us. And indeed, Jesus changed John. What changed him? Certainly, hugely figuring into this are the events of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection left John changed forever. Of the 12 disciples, John was the one of the 12 that was there at the foot of the cross. He heard the nails. He heard Jesus' last words. John beheld the suffering. One of the things that he wrote down, which only an eyewitness in the ancient world could have perceived, is that when Jesus' side was pierced by a Roman spear, that blood and water flowed mingled down. And indeed, uh, the pericardium, the sac around the heart, like there is water and fluid in the lungs, and that is what flowed out of the side of Jesus. And mystery of mysteries, John was there to behold it. From the cross, Jesus entrusted John, this guy nicknamed the Son of Thunder, Jesus entrusted John with the care and companionship of his very mother, Mary of Nazareth. Anybody remember this from Sunday school? (laughs) When Jesus saw his mother, this is from the Gospel of John chapter 19, again, his eyewitness testimony. When Jesus saw his mother there at the cross and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. This is how John describes himself now, the disciple whom he loved. Jesus said to her, woman, here is your son. And to that disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John had been transformed from an angry, pompous son of thunder into a beloved disciple, a trusted and faithful friend, a chosen caregiver for Jesus' own mother. In a way, he became a model of sorts for all of us who would become followers of Jesus in that he became something totally different from where he started his walk with Jesus. In time, and by God's grace, if we live enough years and walk a long enough road with Jesus, might the same be true for even people like us. The other disciples did not live as long as John. After Jesus' ascension, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they divided up in the years to come and set out to the four corners of the world uh, to tell the story of Jesus. All of them lost their lives as martyrs. By the, word, by the way, that word martyr literally means witness or eyewitness. And it came to mean someone who gives up their life because these original eyewitnesses all gave up their very life to give witness. John alone lived to be an old, old man. Because of this, this disciple, this son of thunder, this beloved disciple, has a unique perspective. He not only witnessed Jesus in the flesh for three plus years, but he had years and years, decades and decades and decades to consider what it was really all about. 
what really changed, what it meant for the world, what it meant for him personally, what it meant for the founding of Jesus' church. John has often been linked with the symbol of an eagle. Uh, When I was a teenager, I was in a few cathedrals in Europe, saw stained glass windows like this that were emblazoned with the words St. John or St. Johannes or whatever language it would have been in. Underneath an eagle. I wondered what was up with that. The reason the church has chosen the eagle to be linked with John is because eagles have incredible long-range vision. To put it in human terms, they have like 24 vision. An eagle from hundreds and hundreds of feet up in the air can see a moving rabbit if it is focused in from three miles away. Like, that is incredible long-range perspective, right? An eagle can see something. John lived long enough that he had this incredible vision and perspective unique among all the first eyewitnesses of what Jesus' life and what the gospel were really all about. One of the things John learned was this. I can be ambitious about something more than my own self-interest. And that is a more joyful way to live. When I am ambitious about Jesus' cause instead of my cause, that is when I feel close to God and secure and loved. One of the things John learned was this. I can find a higher motivation in my life than judging others and calling down heaven fire on them. I can find a stronger emotion to drive my day-to-day life than my anger and frustration and my raging against the world. John found love. Jesus trusted this guy, this former angry young man, to care for his very own mother. We know these things about John because he left us quite a bit of writing. The Gospel of John came up to 55 or 60 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. John wrote a gospel. He wrote three letters to early churches, short little letters. They're creatively called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John in your New Testament. And he wrote this crazy, wacky, vision-filled book called Revelation, the final book in the Bible. If you think that a former angry, pompous person wrote these books, you will come to see just how much Jesus can change a human life. With the clarity of the years, John began his gospel not by talking about the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, not by talking about Jesus born in Bethlehem. John, with the years of perspective, chose these words. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God. And the word was God. I mean, this guy knew Jesus in the flesh. And his experience and time taught him that Jesus is so awesome that he was there at the foundation and the creation of the whole universe. That Jesus is the one not only who did miracles and gave amazing sermons, He's the one who spoke matter into being. Like, it probably took a long time to get there. But John saw this. John wrote these three short letters to the early churches. 
I mean, John lived long enough that he became aware of the first really bad ideas that started popping up in and around the church. One of these really bad ideas was that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He was just kind of an amazing God ghost person because our flesh is so corrupt, there's no way that God would actually have come and become like one of these, like us. That couldn't have happened. John refutes that idea from the very beginning because he knew Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. One of his other themes in those short books is that it doesn't take too long, even if you have a great, beautiful church, for people to start arguing and fighting and thinking my way is better than your way and my music's better than your music and my liturgy is better than your liturgy. So one of the things that John wrote again and again to these early churches was, please, let's love one another. And in the book of Revelation, I mean, the book of Revelation has about 430 verses, if you total up all the verses. It has more than 500 references implicit to other parts of Scripture. Did you catch me on this? 400 verses in this crazy Revelation book, more than 500 references to other parts of Scripture. It's like John as an old man had taken so many of Jesus' words in, so much of Jesus' experience, and so much of the Old Testament into his mind and into his heart and into his spirit that when this vision erupted out of him, it was being filtered through the rest of God's word. And by the way, if you want the summary of the book of Revelation, because it can be really confusing, it's this. Times may seem bad. You may be going through a ton of pain. Things might seem like they are totally coming apart. But Jesus wins. That's it. I mean, there's a lot of crazy visions in there. But Jesus wins and love wins in the day. If you, buy, if you drive by somebody with a love wins sign, please take it to mean like that's how the Bible ends. What a transformation from maybe an 18 or 19-year-old angry fisherman to a guy who is so saturated in the scriptures that all that can come out of him are mystical visions filtered by God's word. If I live to 95, like, that's where I want to end up. Some of us in the room today, some of us watching online are a little younger. Some of us are a little older. Here's a question for the younger in the crowd. Do you know any older people that sound a little bit like the old man John that I am describing? If you have a grandparent like that, if you have a neighbor like that, if you're sitting by somebody in church who sounds a little bit like that, who you know loves God's word and is spending morning and noon and evening, like, ask that older person their story. Ask them what they were like when they were 17 or 18 and 19 and contrast it with what God has done in their life. If you are a younger person, can you begin to have the imagination that maybe despite your character flaws and your not best qualities, can you imagine that Jesus might work with you over the course of time and decades in the same way that he worked with this beloved disciple, John? Jesus chose John. Jesus worked with John. Jesus redeemed John. Could it be that Jesus is choosing you? Jesus is going to work with you, and Jesus is going to redeem you. If you are young and you live to be 90 years old, 
If you live to be 95, could you imagine saying this? Once I was fill in the blank. But because of Jesus, I have become fill in the blank. By the way, that's what one of the figures in John's stories, one of John's stories says. John chapter 9. Once I was blind, but now I can see. What was the difference maker? Time with Jesus. This is not only true on an individual level, friends. I'm hoping by God's grace that is true of the church at large, of this congregation in particular. This has been a great church for many decades. Um, I recognize, I mean, Pastor Jeff and I, like, of all the Christian Reformed or Reformed churches in the world, like, we are fortunate as pastors to have landed to serve in this congregation. It's a really good place. But God is not finished with us yet, right? I mean, it could, it could be true of us that, hey, Elmhurst CRC, that's the church with two different kinds of worship services. And that's the first thing people would think about us or say about us. By God's grace, there will be more profound uh, and deeper and more joyful things that are true of us. Maybe something like Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church, that's the place that God is really using to bring healing into the world in many forms. Like, isn't that a beautiful and a joyful thought? So it's already been mentioned a couple times this morning, but this last Thursday, there's about 2,000 people in this building, not all at once, but between all the shots, all the volunteers, some cops, uh, like, there were a lot of people here. Wonderfully, as people are receiving vaccines, there's a lot of relief there's a lot of gratitude, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of uh, anticipatory freedom um, that folks, you can read it on their body language. I want to read some words to you from one person who is here on Thursday um, who wrote a note to our staff um, to express what they perceived from this congregation. This is not meant to pat ourselves on the back, although it's going to sound a little bit that way. It's meant to say, like, this is a vision that someone else had on Thursday of who, by God's grace, we might become and be in the process of becoming. So listen up. Thank you, Elmhurst CRC, for opening up your church as a COVID vaccine site yesterday. This is on Friday. As I drove in, I was so excited to see parking lots busy with people from the community who might never go to church in any other circumstance. Indeed. As I entered the building, I was greeted, served by volunteers, that's you, whose voices and body language communicated, I'm so glad to see you, we are here to help, and they were and they did. I listened in on several sign-in conversations, questions were asked, solutions were found, help was offered again and again. I assume most of the volunteers were church members, yes, and they communicated clearly that Elmhurst CRC would be a place where strangers would be welcomed, served, and loved. As I stood in line, I appreciated the thoughtful way that your video monitors were not promoting your church, even though that would have been the most natural thing to do. Instead, I saw words of thanksgiving, several surprising, <laughs> that created an encouraging space that helped all of us feel welcome. After my shot, I loved the symbolism of using your sanctuary as a, quote, recovery room. That's what the signage said. 
this symbol works in so many ways, doesn't it? A sanctuary was a place where people took a moment to assess whether anything was going wrong after their shot and then were released back into the world. And the sanctuary was a place where people recover. And again, the thoughtful choice of music over your speakers and the gracious offer of a simple water bottle created space for people to wait and I hope to be, atten to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's presence in this recovery room sanctuary. Thank you for opening the church's doors to so many people. I know it must have taken a lot of work to set up, indeed, even more to disinfect and clean after it was over. God bless Joe Bellis and Michelle DeYoung. And I know you'll do it again in three weeks. And I am convinced that God was pleased by your church's sacrifice. This day made visible what we always hope will be true, that the church exists to serve those beyond its own membership. Amen. That the church brings healing and hope to the neighborhood. That the church welcomes those who are new. And that the church proclaims in word and in deed that Jesus is who he says he is. I was so thankful for Elmhurst CRC's witness yesterday. And I'm praying with you that some of those who came just yesterday, particularly those who have never been in a church before, will return at some point and seek to worship Jesus in the days and weeks to come. Amen to that. We need more of that. I mean, this whole thing was just a gift from God that we were allowed to pass on. Praise God for that. So there are several stories of John as an old, old man in the early church. Um, he lived the, rest of the last days of his life near the city of Ephesus in um, the west of modern Turkey. The very last story we hear about him is this. He's 90-something years old, and the leader of this church invites old, old John to come and preach a Sunday morning message. He's so old, he cannot even get himself there on his own two feet. So they carry him into church. He can't even make it up to the front. So they carry him up to the front. And this old man says this with his final sermon. Little children, love one another. I'll say it again. Love one another. Love one another. And they carry him down. Now, the early reports on this sermon were not very good. <laughs> Some appreciated the brevity. But folks thought, we probably shouldn't ask him to preach again. He's just so old and it's clear he's not like got his whole mind all the way to get. Like, what was that? But as the days and weeks and even years lingered on, Folks remembered this day when this ancient man got up and reminded them what after a lifetime of following Jesus, living the gospel was all about. And as a 95-year-old, I think you can call everybody a little child. <laughs> little children, let's love one another. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are not first in the line of this long train of eyewitnesses, but we thank you that this is a chain and a train that has never been broken for these 2,000 years. Thank you that we benefit from the time and the spiritual strength and energy that you have poured into the church through your spirit through these centuries and even millennia. God, let the good news of what you have done through Jesus make us glad and joyful and do whatever it takes to live it out. 
we want to follow as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a